From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. One of the key qualities of a dynamic system of thought is that over time you can return to it over and over and learn more each time. That aspect certainly applies to great books as well, to which I would include Jeff Liker's The Toyota Way. Since its initial 2004 publication, this pioneering exploration of the management principles from what he calls the world's greatest manufacturer has sold hundreds of thousands, possibly a million copies. And he has just published a completely revised second edition in which he builds on his insights and research, introducing new ideas and bringing in a more learning-based exploration of the meaning of this rich system. Welcome to LAI, the podcast of the Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm your host, Tom Ehrenfeld, and today we speak with Jeff Liker about the Toyota Way second edition. Welcome to the LAI podcast. I am honored to have Jeff Laker as today's guest, and we're going to talk about the new second edition, recently uh, released edition of the Toyota Way 14 Management Principles from the World's Greatest Manufacturer. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. So it's an honor. And I will preface it by saying that one thing I deeply admire about this book is that it was not only a classic when it first appeared and has had huge impact in the dissemination of um, these ideas, but you've produced a second edition that reads like a new book. It has so much new material and it's really relevant. And I guess just for starters, hats off. Um, Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Please tell us what you consider are the most important salient um, kind of aspects of the new edition. First of all, I changed the model, the underlying model. I had the 4P model, which was a pyramid, and philosophy was at the bottom. Then the next level was process. Then the next level was people. Then the next level was problem solving. The rationale for that is that philosophy provides the basis of the purpose of the company, what the company is trying to achieve, as well as uh, what they believe is their relationship to the outside world and to customers. And that sets the foundation. And if you want to learn from Toyota as an example, as a model, Toyota's purpose is to add value to society and to customers and to local communities where they do business. And if the goal of the company is make money, and then the reason for making money is to make money, and the reason you want to make money is so you can make more money, if that's the end of the game, it's dollars and cents, then there are probably other ways to do it besides lean and operational excellence that are a lot easier than it becomes transactional buying and selling. As you say, societal mission is greater than earning a paycheck. Right. It's greater for the company because the company exists within society, within the world, within humanity. And it's also greater for engaging your employees. So if you were to go to your employees and say, we want you to work extra hard and 
we want this thing called continuous improvement, which requires that you think deeply and push yourself uh, in your thinking. And the reason we want you to do that is because of these people that own stock and they're rich, but they want to be richer. And we need you to try to help make them richer so they can have an extra vacation home. That's just not very motivating to most people. So this kind of begs a question, what has changed in the kind of broader economy and society that might have um, influenced you that has cranked up this message? And the, so in the new version, I changed the message slightly from long-term thinking. If you're interested in contributing to society, uh, you have to think long-term because, for example, you're going to have downturns and you have to decide what to do. What Do you just empty the company, lay off people, lay off your suppliers, shut down plants, move them to cheaper uh, wage countries, or do you uh, continue to invest in the company, as an example? So long-term thinking was part of it, that the reason to invest in its people is because they're thinking about the long-term. And there may be not be an immediate financial return for a unit of employee training, but they believe that developing employees is the key to having better products and uh, customers being more, more willing to be a customer for life. But the, what I added to that is the word systems. I call it long-term systems thinking. If you look at Toyota, like the Toyota production system, you'll see systems appearing in a lot of, a lot of their concepts and ideas and models. I make the argument that, in fact, systems thinking might be more natural in Japan and in Asian countries than in Western countries. And we're more likely to uh, decompose the world into simple cause and effect relationships. And I do this to get that. So I put in a pull system to reduce inventory. I develop standard work to improve productivity. Uh, whereas uh, in Toyota, and I think it's more common in Asia, I do this set of things in order to, to be excellent and innovative, which will give me, in long term, will, will, will make me more successful and sustainable. Sustainable meaning that there's nobody in Toyota who thinks that if they managed to get in at the right time and buy the stock and sell the stock, and then the company went bankrupt, they would be successful. They're thinking about there's a commitment to long-term survival of the firm. You know, so that I, I thought more about that, about the system's perspective and how important that is, and also uh, how, how difficult it is. Uh, if you read Peter Sange, The Learning Organization, the fifth discipline is systems thinking, and basically argues it's hard. It's not natural for most people. So it takes effort. But the other thing is that, you know, as time went on, I'm seeing the world as being increasingly interconnected. You know, and we, it's really obvious with uh, COVID-19. Right. We have a global pandemic and everybody's affected by everybody else. So the world is it's increasingly obvious with climate change that the world is very interconnected. Okay. And we need to think in terms of systems, not in terms of certain outcome that we want to achieve with a specific intervention or implementation. This is a bit of a digression into history, but um, I'm sure you've read the lovely book, The Birth of Lean, which kind of traces the evolution of Toyota. And it really presents the development of this lean production system, Toyota production system, as a kind of series of countermeasures that were introduced right. to counteract specific problems at a given point in time. Right. And so the overall system was never really introduced 
as a system right kind of emerged and it has right. this emergent quality the right. Fujimoto right. kind of book right. but and I think I'm the relevance to me is that I I fully agree with your argument I think that it's probably difficult for greenfield situations for new companies or perhaps easier to kind of take a systems approach you don't uh, invent and um, implement a full system you kind of work on i think primarily on the pieces of it while being informed by a systematic viewpoint and maybe yeah, that's, that's not an important distinction but please and i know i think that's an important distinction i think when you say by a systematic viewpoint the way I look at it now, and more so than I did when I first wrote the Twit Away, yeah. is that that system systematic systems viewpoint is really your vision. So the I think the problem comes in when we think that this is a system, so I implement, need to implement the whole system, or I'm going to get sub-optimization, and therefore I need to be able to perfectly predict the future right. and come up with the optimal solution that's integrated and then implement that according to the plan. Uh, if we think of the, uh, and I, some of this I also, one a bit major influence on this new book was lots of discussions I had with Mike Rother and okay. his Toyota Kata model. And uh, he starts with the challenge. And that's the first step. And the challenge is really a vision and a set of goals for what you would like to be in the future. And the assumption that Toyota makes, and it's, it just seems to them like common sense, is that I don't know what's going to happen in the future. There's too much uncertainty. And therefore, any ideas I have are preliminary and tentative okay. until I try them, until I rub them against reality and see what happens. But on the other hand, I, hypotheses to test out. They, they become hypotheses. The hypo the the uh, vision is not a hypothesis; it's a dream. Uh, it gives you direction, and that's all it gives you is direction. The way to get there is unclear. I can develop a plan, and the the kind of irony of Toyota is that they are obsessive about planning. So they plan, 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 fully expecting that the plan's not going to work. That they're going to uh, run into reality and then uh, but the plan gives them another kind of direction for example it might give you milestones so that gives you some shorter term goals on the way to the challenge which could be three years out say and that's on the way to a vision which could be 10 to 50 years out uh, so Tuna is always thinking about the future but they don't think the future can be implemented they think you can evolve your way but if you have a direction if you have a vision you're more likely to get toward that vision or close to that vision than if you just aimlessly just poke around and experiment. Brilliant part. One part of the book I thought was brilliant was your discussion of Hoshin Conray, not as a primarily for planning purposes, but as a, um, a process for learning. Right. And that seems relevant to what you're talking. Yes. So can you explain how something that seems bureaucratic, I'm saying with quote marks. Right, right. Um, which is Hoshin Conry, which is a method of establishing goals, articulating how they are to be re realized. How is that about learning as opposed to, say, planning, doing? Well, first of all, Hoshin Conry was just briefly mentioned in the first version. Yeah. And now I have uh, Principle 13 is about Hoshin Conry. And the purpose of the Hoshin Conry for Toyota 
is to, again, this idea of direction, is to have aligned direction because they have worked hard at developing people who can continuously improve, who have the skills of continuous improvement. So there's energy and competence to work toward goals. Once you have that, then the question is, how do you align those goals like a laser beam and focus the energy? And that becomes very powerful when it's focused on specific challenges, specific goals. Otherwise, you can scattershot, just do stuff. And you see companies that uh, introduce lean early on when they're immature and they're doing 5S every place and they're setting up Kanban every place and they're, they're doing TPM and they're, you know, they're using the tools and they, the purpose is to apply the tools. Yes. And, yes. and when you have a scattershot approach like that, it weakens any impact you have on the business. So in Toyota's case, they will always ask the Toyota TPS masters, like Ono students, they'll start with what is the challenge? And they don't want you to do anything until, you've, until the challenge is clear, because that gives you the direction. Uh, but then once they give you the direction, then the next question is, what is the current condition? So you've bounded now right. where you want to be and where you are today. And then they'll say, well, let's just start trying things. <laughs> with the end vision in mind. The Hoshin Connery process and the, the learning process is that if I think of each action, like I set up this Kanban system the way I think it should work, and then I see what happens, each experiment is something to be learned from. So then, you know, the final step in the experiment and really the A in PDCA is reflection. And reflection means what have I learned from doing this? And you can reflect big picture, like it's been four years and we introduced this new product. What can we learn from that? Or much better is to do it every day. That's the learning process. So the starting point is uh, what are the goals, but we want to align goals. And furthermore, Toyota wants a goal plus a plan at every level of the organization. And they don't want to dictate the goals and the plans. They want the goals and the plans to evolve through a, you know, we talk about cash flow through a process of discretion and agreement within each pair of levels in the organization. So I know what you need from me as my boss. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know what I have promised to deliver to you to help you in your goals. And I also have thought through a plan, like, for example, themes. What are the areas that I'm going to work on that I think will get me toward those goals? I thought through that, so I have some areas I'm going to focus on. Again, recognizing that the process of getting there is different than the process of planning. Uh, so I use the, I got this actually from an executive at Volvo who had read the Toyota Way Lean Leadership, and he took it very seriously, and he got a coach, and he started to change the way he thought about things, and he realized that for Volvo, at that time, planning was here's what I need, here's the results, mostly financial, get them for me. And then the vice president level is, I've got a 5% target, you're all gonna get 5% targets, get these for me. And then, you know, the 5% targets just cascade down. And then you sort of figure out how you're gonna achieve it. And he thought of uh, Hoshin Connery as more like mountain climbing. And the role of the leader is to be a Sherpa and to guide you, help you, but the Sherpa is behind the student, not in front of the student.
and if I if I may, kind of frames the improvement process not as climbing a series of steep hills, starting at ground level, but ascending a mountain and right. building on and advancing from where you've traveled. Right. That's good. That's a good point. But the other thing about a mountain is it's very uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen. And you can try to anticipate all the things that you that might happen. So you can go through scenario planning, for example, and that's useful. But and you can prepare yourself with the right tools and you can basic training. Unless you're willing to adapt, you might die along the way. I'm struck by how much preparation and work goes into making something that's ostensibly simple in practice, that, that goes into making it succeed. And I think one huge takeaway for me about the Toyota Way, TBP, uh, Toyota Business uh, practices. practices and Lean is the importance, A, of framing problems in an improvable way. Well, which they're framing problems two in questions. A, actually in a measurable way. You have to somehow know whether you succeed or not. Yes. And the importance of kind of uh, knowledge reuse through a broader process of reflection, kind of mindfulness about what you're trying to improve and why you're trying to improve it. And those seem to me foundational practices of the Toyota Way or Lean, uh, which is kind of building in this meta skill of right. learning from the work by being very mindful and, and, right. Uh, right. and not, not. so that's a, what's meant, what is meant by scientific. Okay. That you're thinking you're not a scientist and you're not trying to uh, develop a breakthrough in the next great manufacturing system to teach the world the correct approach to the next generation of manufacturing. You're trying to solve this problem now. Right, right. And advanced learning, trying to bring it further. But uh, yeah, in the process of the other thing you hear a lot in Toyota is that people development and process improvement go hand in hand. So if I'm if I believe that my job as a leader is to teach you, and then furthermore, I believe that the most important lessons you will learn will be in actual practice, actually trying to improve something in your work. That's the the educational field is the actual work itself. Whenever you're working on improving toward a goal, I have an opportunity to develop you. And I really don't have any, that's the best opportunity I have. I don't have that opportunity in a classroom. I don't have that opportunity if I just do it for you and show you and demonstrate. My opportunity is when you're doing something and I can give you corrective feedback. And the feedback needs to be targeted and as close as possible to the action. We know that from behavioral psychology. So if I'm around at the Gemba, I have an opportunity to find those teaching moments and give you that feedback. It, again, it sounds simple to do, and yet that's stunningly difficult. And, and how many American companies actually take such a common sense approach? That's a rhetorical question. No, it's true. I mean, it's a good, I think the answer is very few. And my point being, can you say more like just observationally about those moments of coaching truth that you're describing? How does, I mean, how does Toyota inculcate this approach to its people? How do they get them to do it? Well, 
in the historically, if you go back to Teichiono, he sort of figured it out. Okay. Uh, and it almost seemed to be natural for him. I don't know. Somehow or another, he was a natural teacher. And he figured out people are going to only learn by doing and struggling. And he would put his students in difficult positions with a seemingly impossible challenge. And then he'd let them struggle. And then he would occasionally give them feedback as well as occasionally give them uh, criticism, <laughs> harsh criticism when they're not working hard enough in his mind or if they're off track. So that was, you know, that he was doing that some, for some reason. And you know, arguably it's related to Japanese culture and the master-apprentice relationship. And he was just acting out the master-apprentice relationship model that was common for the samurai or for sushi chefs or for uh, sword makers or... Sensei and desh, uh, Deshi? Okay. Is yeah. That- okay. So that's the, yeah, the master and apprentice. Yeah. So uh, the dojo is the place where you teach. But for yeah. Ono, the only place he thought was worth teaching was at the Gemba. Everything else was a waste of time from his point of view. That became fairly natural within Toyota so that I'm your boss. Therefore, my job is to develop you. I'm the master. You're the apprentice. So in Japan, that became, became natural. That developed when? Just, just curious. Like in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s? It happened immediately. Like, how does well? It- certainly, if you know, look at Ono, that was you know in the forties and fifties. If you go back to Sakichi Toyota, you know, I really, arguably, he set the framework. You know, thirty years before that. So you could look at early nineteen hundreds. There's you know, but then that was kind of a built on Japanese culture that's thousands of years old. So it's not exactly clear. I'm asking you because I'm assuming part of this audience wants to do this or take take an earnest effort to manage and lead in this way, and it's not easy. No. So I'm 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 saying that not to, not as a kind of historical artifact, but um, as a way of exploring how somebody today who wants to put these principles into practice. How do you develop a culture where this very generative form of coaching um, is taught and practiced? Well, that, so, so uh, Toyota was actually in that position. And the place where it was most visible was Numi. So here you have Toyota with this very rich culture in Japan. And all the engineering and manufacturing was done in Japan. And they figure out that... Uh, you know, particularly Asia Toyota figures out we need to globalize to get the scale. We, uh, and one of the best, most important markets is the United States. So we need to be able to build the cars where we sell the cars in the United States with Americans doing the building. That was not uh, simply a tactical decision. Right. We're going to build cars in the U.S. Let's start doing the work of building the plant and you know, setting up the uh, the accounting system and the infrastructure. And it was for, for him, and this was, again, sort of unusual in the world, for, for him, it was how do we bring the Toyota production system to American culture, viewing the Toyota production system as a complete living social and technical system that has implied in it a very important culture that's necessary to make it work. So he's scared to death. You know, the people in Toyota are scared to death because this isn't simply launching a plant in right. another country and building the building. It's the most important part is building the culture. And they had no idea how to do it because they'd never done it before. So 
they, in part, they relied on Americans. They hired, hired Americans who were uh, very sensitive to developing people. And like Gary Convis was the plant manager and he had been sort of thinking this way at Ford. And they also came up with the idea that we need to send our masters to NUMI to California to teach the Americans who are the students our way. And therefore they sent an army, hundreds right. of Japanese relocated to, uh, so that anybody who was in a leadership position had a mentor. So that was you know, the first reaction was, we'll just do it the way we learned. Which right. is we, we'll just send over all the mentors and it's, uh, it's labor intensive as could be. And then the mentors are thinking, you know, we don't really know how to teach the Americans. And again, that's part of this uncertainty, this belief that there are things I just don't know and accepting that there's things I just don't know. So therefore, every day was an experiment for each of these mentors. And they're calling in every night to Japan saying, you won't believe what happened today. <laughs> uh, and they were sharing and they were trying to learn. Number one, they had to learn what in fact were the cultural elements that are critical and versus the cultural elements that you know, we think are important but don't make much difference. Right. So what is it we, we, ha we can't give in on and what can we adapt to look? So they were figuring that out. They're working with Americans like in human resources who were helping them, who understood the Americans. And it really became a learning organization. So for Toyota, Numi was not setting up a plant to make cars. It was setting up a laboratory in the natural environment of the United States in order to learn. And in fact, the interesting thing is that for GM, it was about making cars. For General Motors, it was how can I, you know, the Japanese seem to be able to make uh, small cars with high quality profitably. We're not so good at that. We're good at big things. Uh, let's see if, uh, number one, we can get some volume of small cars from the Toyota joint venture. So we don't have to do it. And number two, we might be able to learn something about how to make these cars. But they didn't think about it as this cultural experiment to learn from. In essence, it was, the challenge was to teach the essence of the system in an organic as opposed to a mechanistic right, way, right. which is something you've written about. Right, right. Right. So I, I added a preface in the book that focuses a lot on systems thinking, but particularly this distinction between mechanistic and organic and the mechanistic worldview, which is a way of looking at the world. We see the world as looking like an organization's looking like a predictable machine. Right. You can take apart and put it back together in ways, or you can add a turbocharger. And if you if you design a good turbocharger and it fits this V6 engine, right. then my assumption is in mass production, if I make 100,000 of them, they're all going to work in the same way. So if you take that same approach to lean, what are the specifications, what are the design features of lean from Toyota? And then maybe I implement it once in a pilot just to learn, like a prototype. And then the assumption is once I've got, I know how it works, then I can spread it to all my other plants and it will work the same way. Whereas in an organic viewpoint, you see the world is very fluid, dynamic, there's systems that interact, and then there's these weird things called people that you can't really predict what they're gonna do. Therefore, you start to think about emergent phenomena instead of predictive phenomena. And it seems to thrive um, by blending something that, that our friend John Shook has identified as um, 
a, a socio-technical system. Right. That right. it absolutely incorporates these social dynamics while at the same time being driven by very concrete processes and tools. Right. right. Yeah, so if the world is really complex, you might think I need an equally complex set of tools to address it. Whereas Toyota's common sense is, if the world is very complex, I better have a very simple set of tools because I don't want to have complexity trying to change complexity. Well, break it down. What, are, what would you say are the complex tools? And again, I'm kind of building up towards some practical takeaways. Uh, for well, for example, what are the, yeah. Uh, a system from a, from a mechanistic point of view, if I'm thinking about a complex system where the parts all interact and uh, we don't know what customers are going to buy and we don't know how many raw materials to order, then I'm likely to try to solve the problem mathematically and I'll develop mathematical models and that leads to scheduling. And then as the scheduling doesn't work, I make the schedules more and more complex, okay. the mathematical models more and more complex. Uh, and now we're into artificial intelligence and maybe that can do something. And uh, MRP for... Well, so MRP then became MRP2, and then you had other companies that had ERP systems, enterprise resource planning, that were based on optimization algorithms. So again, trying to, to develop an increasingly complex model to deal with an increasingly complex world. Whereas Toyota says, you know, we need to have a basic plan. So we need to have some idea of what the customer is ordering. Okay. And uh, then we need to you know, order some things in advance based on those quantities. But the way we're actually going to trigger production and trigger delivery is through this idea of a Kanban system, which could not be simpler. It's binary. You know, we divide the world into a binary decision. Either I'm ready for this or I'm not. Yep. And we've decentralized the decision-making. So each node in the network is saying, Based on my condition, my actual condition now, I'm ready for more. Interesting. And so they, they, their, their perspective is, since it's so complicated, we need to decompose it into smaller pieces and then treat those smaller pieces with the simplest tools possible. I think it was Jim Womack who was referring to someone else, but the comparison is to somebody who touches the stove. It's it's not a question of the like your finger touching it and going all the way back to the brain. It's that you have reflexes built into the nerves that cause you to react. Right. Well, the part of that stove analogy also is that you learn from experience. Oh. That I can't explain to you well enough and enough times that you should not touch the stove and have it penetrate and affect your behavior. It's when you actually touch it yourself that you know this is not something I want to do again. That's why somebody like Ono would say, just try it. He knows that you are not going to understand how to improve this system, how to improve this person who's putting on a windshield wiper. It's not, let's, let's make it very concrete. You know, you can like look at it and you can theorize and say, wow, that's a terrible method. I think there's a much better method. And you'll have all sorts of ideas. But his view is you don't really know. You're, you're not putting on this windshield wiper. You don't know what that person's experiencing and you don't know all the variations of things that are happening. So try something 
and then when you try something, it may you it's there's a pretty good chance you're you're you'll fail. And then like the hot stove rule, you learn instantly. Not everything I think is correct. And what I find kind of profound, there's a very important second part to that, which is contextualizing this work within the PDCA cycle, where you have built-in mindful reflection that identifies the learning and builds it in. That right. it becomes, you become a cutting right. of a habit of reflection and knowledge right. capture, right. which sets the basis for subsequent improvement. Right. So that, you know, that idea of uh, a habit, you know, so that was another core idea that I got from Mike Rother that I hadn't thought about so much. And there's a book, The Power of Habits, and that he suggests I read. And there's a lot written now about habits and uh, you can, and we often think of habits as being bad habits that we're trying to overcome. So we're working to overcome something that we don't like, we don't eat right. So we want to change that habit, start to eat better. And we don't exercise right. So we want to change that habit and exercise. There's also positive habits that we all have. Uh, we may be good enough at driving that we've gone for hundreds of days without an accident because we've developed habits, which are routines that work for us. The problem is that what we, and then we can also connect this to Daniel Kahneman's slow thinking, fast thinking that's become pretty popular. And what he's saying is that fast thinking means I, I see a problem and I immediately have a solution. And there's a solution that seems obvious to me and often it's wrong. And it's also impacted by a lot of biases that we've, we know about. Then there's slow thinking, which stops where you stop and you say, wait a second, do I really know that? And then you do the math or you run the experiment, you discover that you don't know it. And that slow thinking is more deliberate, planned, uh, there's reflection. So all the things we talk about as PDCA are really slow thinking. And the other thing he observes and other people observes is that historically, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, if you spent too much slow thinking, you likely were dead because there's so many immediate threats in the environment that if you didn't react to the animals and the other people and the environment, you were going to die and your children would die. So your genes would not be passed on. So the people whose genes were more likely to be passed on were fast thinking. So for a variety of reasons, it seems like our default is fast thinking. And that's natural. And then we need to somehow counter that you know, to use the word countermeasures a lot. Yep. So countermeasure is to do something to practice slow thinking so that that becomes more natural. Interesting. And that's what Toyota business practice is about. And Toyota business practice is, is in, in large part a countermeasure to the problem they had at NUMI, which is how do we change the way these people think and solve problems uh, and they were just poking around, they didn't know anything, but over time they learned more and more and more. And they ended up creating a uh, formula, which was, here are the steps of Toyota business practices. You have a coach and the learner is leading this. And then there's also a process called on-the-job development that's complementary to Toyota business practices, which is how the coach coaches you. So the coach needs certain skills, it needs to take certain actions. 
to coach you and the setting for the learning is a real problem. It's the Gemba. Yeah. Uh, and in the process of going through the steps, if you you will count try to counter this natural tendency to jump to conclusions for fast thinking. And when you do that enough times, because we really develop habits through repetition, and you start to see success, you experience success, you don't hear about it, then now you're starting to change your way of thinking. You're trying to change your habitual ways of approaching problems. Interesting. Now that, that also was done through A3 thinking before I traded business practices, but A3 thinking really depended much more on the competence of the coach. The people, they were just good at it. And they, they were like, you know, advanced coaches and they had their own way of coaching. And the purpose of the A3 was just to make visible the thinking of the student so that the coach could coach. And so the, the coach would see that you've jumped to solutions when you haven't really defined the problem well. So the coach would make you go back. And uh, that's really what John Chook's Managing to Learn is about, is that process of the student wanting to jump ahead to the end and the coach constantly pulling the student back, pulling the student back to, you know, no, we're here. We haven't defined the problem yet. We don't understand the current situation yet. We haven't looked at possible root causes yet. So how can we possibly know what the solution is? So that is that coaching becomes very in a, in a, in Toyota in coaching that John Shook received was very, very intense yeah. uh, and also frustrating and also uh, uh, uncomfortable. And it's a counterintuitive approach that does not initially feel natural. Um, I think in any way, shape or form. Right, right. To most. Now, if, if I just let you develop an A3 report and I look at it and say, good job, you know, here's a spelling error. Could you correct that? Or maybe you should make this kind of chart instead of that it will feel very natural and you won't learn anything. And that's, by the way, the, the basis for Toyota Kata was the same sort of thing. You know, how do we take what Toyota does through this, these generations of master apprentice learning and make it accessible to ordinary people who haven't gone through that experience? And the key characteristics have to be that you work on a real problem, that there's a coach-learning relationship, that we have an idea of what you should be doing at this stage and some idea of how it can be done so that I have some standard to coach you against. And then we need to build in repetition right, right. and we need to build in actions as experiments. And then each, each experiment follows PDCA, a plan, you do it, you check what happened, you reflect. And we need a lot of repetitions so, so you meet daily and the uh, overall process of setting the challenge might be done once for a project because it might be a one-year challenge. But the experiments, each of the small PDCA loops ha can happen very quickly and we can get a lot of feedback and a lot of repetition very quickly. So that's the basis for that. So the way Mike talks about it, he, th he thinks of Toyota business practices as Toyota's kata. That's <laughs> their improvement kata is sort of business practices. And he developed his, his method model, which is a little bit simpler and more clearly emphasizes the iterative learning process of running the experiments over and over again. But the other thing we know about developing habits is, habits is it takes time. And rep, repetition. And repetition. Yeah. But what you're doing when you take the time and do the repetition is you don't try to eliminate the bad habit 
you try to create a new habit, which will eventually replace the bad habit. And they're two and they're different things. In your book, The Toyota Way, second edition, you share the kind of an executive summary of the 14 Toyota Way principles, the new and revised principles you've developed. It's on page 377, reader, listeners. And beyond that, I want to ask if there, if it, this is not a fair question, but briefly, like, what are the takeaways folks should get? What are things they should think about doing um, as a result of reading the book and that support this goal of applying the core principles? Well, if you, uh, well, first of all, to recognize their principles. Okay. Solutions to implement. And the purpose of that appendix, I even went a step further and said, for each of the, I created like an assessment instrument. Right. And for each of the principles, I said, you could be anywhere from one to five, where one is completely mechanistic and uh, top down and command and control and mass production. And five is Toyota like, or Toyota is ideal because Toyota is not Toyota like completely. And then there's some steps in between. There's three, which is in between. So I define one, I define three, which is use of lean tools in a reasonable, sophisticated way. And then five is developing the culture, the socio-technical system. And for each of the principles, I define those endpoints in the middle. And then I say, you know, if you're between one and three, then you're two. So it's a very crude, rough estimate of where you are in each of the principles. And it's just intended to be a self-assessment, not to be a diagnosis like a doctor would do for a disease. And then I suggest, why don't you place on that same uh, chart where you'd like to be? And then, that, so you, you start to think about a vision. What is the vision for what we want to be? Now, Ted's philosophy, as I said, is very purpose-driven. And the company might say, well, we're sort of split, you know, we're under a lot of pressure to deal to, to deliver quarterly profits, but we also want to help the customer. So you're you may not want to be a five on purpose. Maybe you're happy to be a three. Then I suggest prioritizing, again, breaking down the problem. So the areas that we think we should be working on this year are developing people into effective work groups. Uh, you know, we're already pretty good at the tools, but using something like a Kanban system for learning and doing a better job of visual management and creating effective work groups. Okay. That's where we want to focus, like in Hoshin Connery. That's where we're going to prioritize. So it's not until you develop a vision but break it down and prioritize that you have something that you can act upon and be, begin to plan toward. And then I suggest that the way to achieve that is like Toyota Business Practices or like Mike Brothers Toyota Kata. Think about where you'd like to be as your vision and where you are as your current condition. And think about this as a process of experimentation rather than a process of implementation. Huge thanks to Jeff Liker for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you as well to LAI's own Lori Moniz, Pat Pancheck, and John Cotter for their help with this podcast. Above all, thanks to you, our listener, for joining us. Please share any comments, questions, or suggestions with us at pod, P-O-D, at lean.org. 